You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here on our fourth week discussing interactive fiction, and our second week discussing Lucas Pope's Return of the Obra Dinn. Herds has gone all the way through to the end of the game, including the extra chapter bargain that you get for getting everything right. And Herds, super excited to be joined by Lucas Pope today, later in the show. Stick around for that. And uh, Herds, I just wanted to kind of ask, yeah, off the bat, always talking about bargain, because it's a chapter wherein we... Finish the game, a year passes yeah. and you receive a package from Henry Evans, the that doctor. smells bad. Yeah, Let's be clear. Who, sends you, uh, who sends you the book in the first place. He resends you the book along with a monkey's paw. Yeah, well, it's like you It's like you wish for something on the monkey's paw. The traditional story is that the monkey's paw has three fingers up or however many fingers. And when you wish for something on the monkey's paw, it comes true, but in the worst way possible. It's like, a, like an awful curse. Like you get... All the dirts you can eat, but you have to eat them all at once and you die. And you get this monkey's paw in, uh, in, in, I was about to say papers, please. In the return of the Obra Dinn. I've got it on the brain. We have to talk about that. But in the return of the Obra Dinn, you get this monkey's paw. And I loved the moment when I was playing this and I said, is this the, is this the literal monkey's paw? And it was, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're able to use the, the compass watch which uh, is the property of Mr. Henry Evans, the surgeon on the ship, which is a great little lore detail because you can imagine he'd use it on people who like who died because he's the doctor in a murder mystery. So he could tell you how they die with the watch. It's a lovely little murder mystery trope kind of explained with supernatural means, which I love. But you get to use the watch on this monkey's paw, which puts you into the lazarette. uh, The one area of the ship you couldn't enter the whole game. And so you use this monkey's paw, use the compass on the paw to see the moment where- Henry Evans is talking like, I'm about to do something, something not very good. And he shoots this monkey yeah. uh, so that he can, because he understands you know, the mechanics of the compass watch. He can use that monkey's uh, body because it's like on a leash. He uses it so he can access the lazarette and like figure out what happened in there and like pass that information along. Yeah, it's a really great scene. Someone, while we were streaming the game online, asked us in chat, you know, what was the worst death in the whole game? And I said, I I can't answer that question just yet because the monkey, the poor (laughs) monkey definitely has the uh, most, I guess, unnecessary would be the word. Yeah, although notably, and this this is something I'm a bit a bit miffed at myself for missing. When you get to the escape chapter, when Henry Evans is actually escaping from the boat. He doesn't have his monkey with him. That he does not. Funny that one. Funny that detail. Yeah. Very it, clever. It's very good and is an excellent example of how the story shows you absolutely everything you need yes. to know. Yes. For example, during the bargain chapter, the actual bargain we see is the Captain Robert Witterall bargaining with the mermaids to send the Kraken away and to bring the Obradin home safely, which mm. it is implied that the glowing star you see in the ocean yes. off the side of the ship is one of the mermaids who brought the ship back to Falmouth. We we probably shouldn't call it a star because it is like underwater or like on the water's you know edge. You can imagine the mermaid is like yeah. peeking up over the water, and both that shimmer out on the on the water, and also whenever you see one of the shells during the murder flashbacks, yeah. They all kind of have that same shine to them. And I think the really fun thing about this chapter is that it does a great job of showing you the concurrent events that are happening. For example, Philip Dahl, we see Dyer locked up there with the Formosan box after several characters on the ship have lost their marbles and some people have gone out and tried to take the Formosan box to yes, sea, which yes. is supposedly what called the mermaids there in the first place. Yeah. Uh, we get to see, for example, when the captain is down there bargaining with the mermaids, the ship's tilted over and you hear the crashing of things above deck, implying that the moment 
in the very first scene of doom, which was like the fourth scene in the entire game where the captain's wife calls out, you know, I want my husband, Martin, where is he? Uh, that when she gets crushed by rigging, it is the same moment that the captain is down below deck trying to save the ship. It's really cool from a kind of thematic point of view that the, this captain's actions are fruitless. Um, especially as he's one of the first characters presented in the game um, you kind of expect the captain to be responsible for everything that happens on the ship. Yeah. And in that moment, he is sort of implied to be that he's like stabbing of the mermaid. The the idea that those two actions are interlinked, that perhaps the Kraken is growing more ferocious and more, more vicious. Yeah. Um, as it is like sensing that these mermaids are in trouble, that they're dying on the ship, which I think is like a, it's like a really cool through line there. It does a fantastic job. And as we were talking about last week, in terms of the impact of the individual moments, the spectacle of seeing those still shots, all of the spectacle that is still etched in your brain because of how memorable each scene has been, then comes back around later in the game in a way that you wouldn't really expect because of how bizarre the bargain chapter is where it fits in fictionally in the story. I will say- I have one disappointment, one major disappointment, Flex, that I have to confess. By all means, sir. There is a character. For some some perspective here, the captain is in 13 uh, plus the two scenes that he's in the lazarette, so 15 scenes in the entire game. Yes, just just in case you've missed it, in the list of characters, you can click on them to see how many scenes across the whole game they're in. No, I counted them. I count. That's not true. I'm not that dedicated. The captain is, in the end, in 15, despite being a major player. The, the third mate is in, like, 10. Yeah. Um, there is a character who is in 17 scenes, easily the, the highest of any character. His name is Henry Brennan. He's one of the characters who, who tries to mutiny against the captain at the end of their story. And he's there, like, right at the beginning, too. He's in a whole bunch of really important scenes. And yet we never see him, like have an arc i suppose i don't don't know the thing with brandon i completely agree he's a very simple character but also out of a cast of 60 with so many well-painted characters i do like that at least from the game design perspective brennan is a more simple easy to understand way to follow who's who in the story for sure like the midshipman I think are probably one of the best examples of a narrative going uh, in the game. Cause you mentioned yes. last week on the show Charlie. that we get to see Charlie have this journey from being a wimp to sacrificing himself, but they're also very difficult to figure out in the sense that first of all, you have to actually realize that you need to look at the ship map and which room one of them crawls into die to figure out which job they have on the ship. For sure. For then sure. you have to figure out which one of the three uh, they each are based on a line of dialogue that feels quite throwaway. I do want to say on the more positive side of things, it's a bit of a, a bit of a jab there at the old, the old Pope man. But I, I do like the fact that none of the characters, because when you think of murder mysteries, when murder mysteries get put in, in a film or in plays, yeah. I feel like a sort of stereotype is that all the characters are wearing like very ostentatious garbs and like very visibly identifiable from each other. Um, but this story sort of takes the opposite approach where if you're just looking at those those crowd shots, like you cannot tell like which character is which. Like none of them are wearing like a, like a feathered hat. Like they have hats to, to indicate their rank, like the captain and their, you know, and their mates and, mm. and the, the mate stewards and such. Yeah. But like most of the characters aren't wearing anything to immediately set them out from every other 59 characters. I do think, though, uh, that that is counteracted by your ability to zoom in on the character and see where they are in the portrait. That is essentially like if a if a text based murder mystery 
had an option where you could highlight a moment a character was speaking and it would highlight their name in the character list for you. How handy would that be? Um, it would be extremely handy. If you could just have a book that was like every line from an individual character was like color coded the same way or something, that'd be handy. <laughs> it would. Anyhow, you're listening to Death of the Reader. For the rest of the show today, we are going to be joined by Lucas Pope talking about some of the decisions, history and influences that went into this game. Stick around for that. We're super excited for this chat. We are talking all the way to the end of Return of the Obra Dinn. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you, and today we are talking about Return of the Obra Dinn, a supernatural murder mystery set in the 19th century concerning a mysterious deadly ghost ship and we're joined by the man himself, Mr. Lucas Pope, the game developer responsible for this beastly work of interactive fiction. Lucas, it's so good to have you. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So you've made two high-profile games, soon to be three, that revolve around making mundane paperwork more interesting. Why are you so dedicated to giving your players another job? Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I think <laughs> in ultimately, uh, I enjoy that kind of game. I enjoy managing paper. I don't know why, but that comes out into my games. Uh, you know, it's probably just some OCD thing, probably mechanically, it's easy for me to understand kind of like filling out a game like that is sort of like filling out a matrix. You decide the edges first and it's kind of easy. And then you just have to go in and fill in all the cells later. And that kind of works in well with when you're coming up with the mechanics as you're coming up with the story and kind of mixing them and weaving them together and trying to get them to complement each other in interesting ways. It helps me to have that sort of structure of bureaucracy, basically, or just very strict, kind of boring, mundane tasks. Yeah, so when you're coming up with a with a game idea, you know, obviously it's like a lightning bolt. That's how it's portrayed in all the movies. So I assume that's how you experience it. Um, it do you kind of come up with the mechanics first? Like, did, did you have the idea for a, a magical compass that'll let you see the past before you came up with the idea of the Oberdin, or what was a chicken and egg situation? What's going on there? Yeah, for Oberdin, it was a little different. I came up with the visual style first. I wanted to make this three D one bit game, basically, uh, and. I played around with a few ideas or concepts and ended up on this basically tall ship that had gone missing and came back. I felt like as, as a one person dev team, I could model a ship and handle that kind that level of production. Basically um, that, that turned out to be pretty wrong. It was a lot of more work than I expected, but at that point I'd already committed to the concept and I did not, I had some of the basic ideas. Like I knew I, I work mostly from restrictions. So I knew I couldn't have things moving around and animating. And I couldn't have this kind of, expensive cutscenes or amazing effects and things like that. So I, I, the tools I had to work with were very limited. And so I didn't have a whole lot of the game planned out when I just threw together a scene or two, one or two flashbacks and kind of put a couple characters in there, put some dialogue in there, uh, set them up in a way. It, looked, it was all very rough, but it was enough for me to look at this and say, I could make a whole game out of this. What I have here, I, there's enough little pieces and potential to twist some things together to make it interesting. And that was pretty early in Oberdin, which is good because it gave me confidence through the whole project. It was a very long project. Um, but the whole time, I always felt like these pieces I have, these pieces of game that I have, that you could make a good game out of them. I, I can't guarantee that I will actually find that game, but at least I'm, you know, there's a potential here for something cool. Now, obviously, Lucas, a huge draw of this game uh, is the way that you use terrifying monsters uh, the mystery of what happened to the ship's crew on, on the Oberdin uh, is contrasted with the raw truth of the beasts that seem to appear from nowhere to deliver judgment on them. Uh, these events are clearly uh, inspired by you know classic seafaring myths. 
Um, why did you choose the open ocean over other facets of, of monster mythology, like spooky castles or isolated mountain peaks? The other idea I had was an Egyptian tomb. So, I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like I magically picked this one immediately. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of good mythology there. There's a lot of, when I decided to sort of set it here, I did a lot of research on reading lots of books and um, true accounts of accidents at sea and things like that. Uh, and a lot of fiction too. And there's just a lot of interesting material there, basically. It's just a lot to go on. And and I really wanted to kind of go hard on the nautical terminology and the sort of situational uh, effects of being on a ship like that and the, the way that uh, crews worked back then. A lot of things that I discovered in the research that I felt like weren't really represented that much and could make really interesting parts to the game that would be easy to kind of slide in there and also add a lot more rich uh, sort of accoutrement to the story, to the game. A lot of what I do is trying to figure out how not to do stuff. So how can I put the least amount of spice on the dish so that it tastes good and the people who are eating it uh, kind of envision it as something better than it really is? You know, when you deal with sea mythology and sea stories, there's a lot to work with there in, yeah. in that sense. I mean, we were talking last week on the show with local author B. Michael Radburn about that concept, about the idea that the players or the reader's imagination will go further than anything that you could show them in terms of horror. And I think the great example in this game is those freeze frame death scenes. That's kind of the main spectacle of it. There's, as I said, there's so much spectacle to it, but you also show a great amount of uh, restraint and how the scenes are constructed. We never get to see certain details of the monsters. We never get to see the Kraken's heads and all of the actions of the characters uh, feel so grounded, like the ship's cook springs to mind because they're murdered just because they wanted to try cooking up a new meal. How do you blend a story that has such a peak of implausibility with these moments of mundane character? How do you make sure nothing feels out of proportion? Uh, you, well, I mean, if you're talking about me, I just wing it and got lucky, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think like just in general, when it comes to writing stories, I try to keep things more grounded. I decided on eventually having 60 characters and I needed to kill 60 people or you know, 50 people in interesting ways. At some point it was clear, okay, I got to do something more than just people stabbing each other or guys fighting. There's got to be some cool monsters that, that sort of uh, are revealed at some point. There was an interesting challenge to to tell the story. Uh, in, in a way, just to these little snippets of memories, you know, 30 seconds here and 10 seconds there, um, in a way that was interesting and the player could sort of piece everything together uh, only when someone dies. And that's already a challenge right there. I can only tell a story when somebody's dying. So people have to be dying left and right. Uh, but it has to feel kind of natural. It can't be that crazy. And so you put some fantasy creatures in there, some monsters in there, and suddenly, you know, it feels a little more natural that people are dying more often. Yeah, I thought that was it was really fun because, you know, this essentially, I think of everything we've covered on the show, doing murder mystery fiction from all around the world, this is the story that has the highest body count. And there's so much that's clearly kind of come out of the limitations that you had for yourself to put in those details. And I think it's really fascinating how many characters on the ship get a fully realized story when all we really have is, you know, 60 or less scenes of just people dying, you know, these short miniature narratives that go on where we get to see the third mate traveling around the ship with his steward in the lead up to their death. Yeah, I mean, well, I started with just fleshing out, I mean, just getting the story down, getting the progression down. The uh, One tricky part is the player kind of experiences the game in reverse and they have to meet these corpses, these bodies to, to see the new elements of the story in the right order as they sort of get down lower decks on the ship. 
sequentially, I had to like introduce new corpses in a way that sort of directed the player through the ship and they made some pr- progress that way. And so just making that all tie together with the number of deaths and the kinds of deaths was the hardest part. If, if I was smarter, what I would have done is I would have made a game similar to this on, say, a little skiff that was like 17 people or 12 people running the thing. And then each scene could have been a lot more detailed or maybe it would have been a shorter game or maybe there were other things to make it longer. But basically when I decided I was going to do this sort of tall ship of this size, which needs something like 120 crew to actually run it. And I kept cutting that down until finally I was at 60. And I was like, okay, 60, I can handle. 60 took me four and a half years to handle. So if I could have gotten that down even lower, I think I could have maintained, I could have kept a lot of the good things about the game, but just made it way easier to actually make. And by the time I finished the game, by the time I shipped the game, I was so totally sick of working on it uh, that I didn't care if it was not playable or not, or if people got <laughs> oh stuck, my basically. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, I got lucky that it worked out, but I, I was so done with the game at that point. I mean, when I when I played the game, I, I felt that I would kind of wait to see if I would get clues about characters that I knew had already exited the story because you're playing backwards, obviously, um, in earlier chapters of the of the you know of the game. Um, for me, the mechanic once I figured out how it worked of the characters in the uh, in in the the, the picture, their their faces become clearer when you uh, when I suppose when you believe that we have enough clues to figure out who that person is. And for me, the way I kind of internalized that was that. Ah, you know, Mr. Popia has given us all the clues that we're going to get. Um, and so once that face becomes clear, I should look back through the chapter that I've, you know, just read or the chapters that I've already read to try and find that character's identity. Um, I feel like that mechanic in particular, it really stood out to me as being the most helpful. I think. Yeah, I think I think the other thing that stood out to me is based on talking with other people in our audience who've played the game, so many people who've experienced this story just have learned the cast top to bottom. Like one of the side effects of the way that you've asked people to pick apart and look at the small details of these stories means that even years after some people in our audience have played the game, they still know every character in the cast by name. And when we were like, you know, poking and asking questions, would be able to recite entire scenes in ways that was really like, I think it's kind of special that you're able to build a rapport with your players where they have that distinctive a memory of the experience you gave them. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things I'm most proud about the game. And I didn't really realize this myself. I mean, I live with these characters and I wrote these characters, so it wasn't that special to me. But watching someone play and then I, I, you know, they were talking about all the characters in a way that they really knew them pretty well. I I also I realized that like you can see you, you play this game for a little bit and then you see one of the characters and this game looks bad it's like low resolution you cannot see things very clearly actually it's hard to see characters but still if you play the game for a while you can see one of those characters from behind across the ship and you can kind of know who he is and that really surprised me i mean it it came natural to me because i you know like i said i made these guys but when i saw my wife kind of in that same mode where she could recognize these characters from behind in the distance in the dark in this really low resolution one bit style I, I I don't know. I thought, yeah, wow, I got lucky with that too. Yeah. Jesus. I, mean, I I read somewhere that you you randomly generated the the bodies of the characters. Is that is that right? Um, before sculpting, sort yeah. of. Do you want to walk no, that process? I, what I did, what I did was like I kind of yeah I randomly generated these kind of types of head shapes basically, and then I would uh, click through a button to look at the results. And if I saw a head that looked kind of good, and this is just a shape, the geometry. If I saw a kind of head shape that looked good. 
I would set that aside and then create an actual head out of it and then paint it by hand afterwards. A lot of the, the, all the dress and the way these characters look is all informed by old photographs. Those are kind of too late, but drawings and things like that of, of these guys. And there's just a lot of interesting media about a ship like this, the kinds of crew that they had uh, and the kinds of people were there and the, the roles that each one of them had and the kind of lifestyle they had. And that was one of the things I thought was really interesting is the, a way to create kind of cliques with these guys. There were all different stratas of, of class on these ships. And, you know, the lower class guys would stand, stay together, the middle class and the higher class. But in the end, they're all together on this boat in the middle of the ocean, and they're all kind of responsible for surviving. And the, the, the situation is so dire and so risky and so dangerous all the time that they kind of have to come together in ways that you wouldn't really expect this, this different class of people to come together and different nationalities too. making the player pay attention to that stuff, I thought was was nice, too. Yeah, I suppose one of the other things that's been pretty divisive that we actually really loved is that one of the twists of the game is once you've reached the end and gotten all the fates, you're rewarded with the bargain chapter that purports to explain any lingering questions, but actually raises more questions than it answers. Why reward players with more ambiguity when that's actually kind of bound to let some people down? Man, I I was so happy with the way the game ended when I was making it. I I struggled with a way to end the game for a really long time. The solution was the monkey, basically. Uh, I added a monkey, and then I realized I could end this game on a monkey's paw. And, and like that, for a mystery story, I can't think of a better ending than a monkey's paw. No, it's it is the it's perfect. The the moment of realization. I think we both had. We played was, through the game it was separately before it re- was revealed. It was like with the the bundle that like yeah. smelled off. I was like. It's the monkey's yeah. paw. It's the monkey. It's happening. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was really proud of that. And it's only until after the game was released and people were like super disappointed in the ending that I realized that, you know what? I built it up too much. To me, the mystery was the sort of the book. How did you get the book? And how did, what was going on? How did, could you do this stuff? Uh, and the reveal that one of the guys on the ship had the watch uh, the whole time and, and knew how to use it to me sort of like opened up everything into this re- much more interesting story. But, it's too obscure, actually. I don't think a lot of players get that the surgeon had the watch the whole time, knew how to use it. You wonder, like, why didn't he use it more? And, well, that's kind of, okay, that does answer, ask a lot more questions, but to me, it makes it pretty interesting. When I was making the game, I came up with the idea of the watch pretty early. Okay, so you have this magic watch, and you can go back in time, and you can see how what happened when somebody died. And there was a very careful balancing act to make the player care about the story in the game and not the watch to care about the, the mystery on the boat and not the watch. Because realistically, if you got that watch uh, and I've said this before, you would get right back on the boat, the little boat, and you would go right back into shore and you would rule the world with that watch. And so I needed to kind of turn the light off the watch for as much as I could. Cause I had some cool ideas about interacting with things in the memories or seeing things in the memories in a way that would, you know, blow your mind with how cool the watch was. But at the same time, any if I had done that, then this mystery about mermaids and, and treasure is like, okay, pedestrian, basically, compared to what the kind of potential of the watch. And I wasn't going to change the mermaids and the, the treasure. So, okay, that means the watch has to get kind of downplayed. Um, but at least what I can do is at the very end, I can kind of open the door a little bit and show the player kind of what was going on that whole time you were solving this mystery. There was a guy there who knew everything about the watch, had the watch with him, 
uh, and has passed that to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were both incredibly happy with it. We're, we're always a big fan. Despite reading Murder Mystery, we're always a big fan of ambiguous endings. And I thought that the way that you blended the kind of supernatural ambiguity of what was going on with the mermaids and the shells and the Formosan box compared to the very finite, but, you know, perhaps not clear to everyone story about the stopwatch and the doctor was was just such a beautiful culmination of all of the ideas because as you say the stopwatch is the most powerful thing in the game despite all of these you know horrid monsters and seafaring myths that we've dealt with across the story yeah thank you (laughs) (laughs) i i really like the idea that the the surgeon of all people is the person who has the watch because you could just you know it's, it's interesting because he could be responsible for killing people on the ship with these bad surgeon work and and he's the one who's responsible for figuring out how people died that, that gives him a certain level of authority i would think that's a bit questionable yeah yeah there's a really cool uh vibe that i got from reading these true stories of of shipwrecks and things like that from the period and they're all written by the survivors so every one of those guys that survived uh was super vicious and not vicious <laughs> they really only looked out for themselves and that's because if they didn't then they wouldn't be the one who got back and told the story and they were all very practical. And so that was kind of my vision for everybody on the ship, but especially the surgeon. It's just very practical. Like he knows how powerful those watches. He, he's not going to go back and fix things. He's not going to go back and solve mysteries. Maybe he does actually, maybe he did, but he's not going to tell anyone that he knows because that's only gotten him in trouble before. And I'm just not going to use it for that. And it's just kind of like life is cheap mentality that was very prevalent at the time that he's not going to stick his neck out to save someone else's life. Uh, and that's all based on just reading this, these stories uh, written uh, from the time. I think one of the really interesting things, uh, just to kind of to cap off here with Obra Dinn, it's become so much of an instant modern classic. You know, it, it definitely has that indie edge where, you know, there's, there's oh, the weird you. decisions you've made and the things that probably aren't perfect. But I, I think everyone I hear talk about this game has a sense of reverence in that it is as such a defined particular experience that's so satisfying to go through. And even if you are frustrated with the ending, even if you are frustrated with the mechanics, I I don't think I know anyone who's touched this game who will ever forget the experience they had with it. And that's so awesome to me that a game that's so recent has had such an impact, at least with all of the circles that I communicate with in being this memorable. How's your ego doing, Lucas? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Holding up. Good. I'm glad. Uh, like just choosing the visual style, I think, was a was a good move in that sense, because you you look at that and you know that you're going to get something weird. And so I think I got a lot of latitude from people who play the game just by just by looking at it. They know that, OK, this this part is weird and this part sucks and it's not fun, but I kind of knew that because it looks weird. You know, it looks like it's going to be hard to play. So there's a kind of filter on, on, there's a gate that you have to go through that I think puts players in a better mood for, for the kind of bullshit that I pull during the, the the whole game. So it just kind of works out. It gets lucky. It's why, you know, I can never make kind of a a mainstream sort of game, I think, because I would just screw it up in in ways that people would be really unhappy (laughs) with. You have that base level expectations that you can't hit, but if you go a completely different angle, you're fine. You know, that's what yeah, I, yeah, basically. I get it. I get it. All right, I love it, Lucas. Thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and getting the chance to play through Oberdin for the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, my pleasure, absolutely. We are discussing Lucas Pope's return of the Oberdin all the way through to the end. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on Two SER One Hundred Seven Point Three. You're listening to Death of the Reader. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. Lucas Pope there talking about Return of the Obra Dinn with us. His wonderful mystery game where you are an insurance assessor aboard the good ship Obra Dinn, mysteriously returned to Falmouth uh, with no crew. And it is up to you to go and figure out what happened to all of them. I hope you enjoyed getting to hear that extended discussion with Lucas Pope. I figured it was the most interesting way to bring you all of the things we wanted to share about this game. The last thing I wanted to direct you towards today before we finish this discussion uh, is that up online on Lucas Pope's YouTube channel, and I'll link this on the podcast, is a full like 50 minute time lapse of Lucas Pope putting together the dioramas. Heck yeah from the return of the Obra Dinn. It is such a gem to watch. I think if you enjoyed the game and how it is constructed, which is definitely to me one of the most interesting parts of the game. I, I think it's the most interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and put my opinion there. <laughs> yeah, it is it is well worth taking a look at. Because all in all, despite any complaints that we'd have, this is a masterful piece of interactive mystery fiction mm-hmm. that despite breaking many of the traditional text-based rules of mystery fiction, does an excellent job of still being fair to you as a player in mechanizing exactly what you need to do to fill out the list of this cast and hear the whole story. Yeah. Um, There's like 20 heckin' murderers in this story. Yeah. It's great. Anyhow. Anyway. Luke's Pope's Return of the Oberdin is an excellent piece of interactive fiction, and I'm absolutely overjoyed that we got to experience it here on the show, and I hope that you get the chance to check it out or yep. watch us playing it uh, But we online. must move on. And uh, we must. To you and Uncharted Territories. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to yes. look at interactive, a sort of interactive uh, murder mission. We're going to have you look at Rooster Teeth's uh, Dead Little Roosters. Yes. The- third installation in their Little Roosters series. Yep, there was 11 Little Roosters, which was a little spy thriller before this, and then the original was 10 Little Roosters, which was very much then, and then there were none nod. Next week on the show, we will be doing episodes one to six of Dead Little Roosters. We really should just do a proper ARG at some point. That's really what we should <laughs> just do. We're getting closer to it. Closer. I can feel it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Alrighty, you're listening to Death of a Reader here on 2SER 107.3, your murder mystery world tour. This has been Luke's Pope's Return of the Oprah and we will see you next time.